0: Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, change makers, and agrarian trust collaborators.
1: Welcome to Commons Groundswell. I'm your host, Natalie Ashker Sievers. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Dunn. Elizabeth has 20 years of legal experience and currently serves as Director of Legal Advocacy at the Earth Law Center, a nonprofit whose mission is to transform the law to recognize, honor, and protect nature's inherent rights to exist, thrive, and evolve. In this episode, we discuss what it means to advocate for nature within the legal system, the Rights of Nature movement, and reasons we should be challenging the idea of land ownership. (laughs) (laughs) okay Mm. welcome elizabeth thank you for joining today thank you for having me so i thought a good place to start would be with your personal story a little bit um how you came to advocate for earth's rights and you know what got you interested in this concept of giving nature a voice within the legal framework.
0: Yes, well, I've been um, practicing law for about twenty years now, which is which is hard to believe, but really about midway through my my um, journey, I realized um, from a lot of my experiences working with traditional environmental laws, working with communities on not just environmental realm, but also doing public interest impact litigation and trying to improve housing conditions, um, access for people with disabilities um, and that kind of thing. I realized that there are so many limitations in our current legal system that we need New laws, and we need to re- redesign really the fundamental presumptions that are part of our of our legal system. So, like an example is um, a case where I was representing the Sierra Club fighting a large housing development on really prime, important agricultural land on the island of Oahu, and. Felt like, and this is just one example of many, where I'm just grasping for legal tools to um, to protect this land, and I'm, you know, looking at this process, and we're following this process and this system and these permits, and you know, it's just uphill battle because the developers and the extractive industries, they've got all the cards, you know, and you're just fighting against that because all the presumptions are pretty much in their favor. And so I took a break from practicing law and I traveled around. Um, I studied permaculture and I lived in intentional communities and I spent some time in New Zealand, which is where um, I first connected with the rights of nature movement and this idea that you could be um, really shifting the whole paradigm by recognizing that nature has intrinsic rights and value. Um, And recognizing that in our legal system, because, um, you know, I know that and many people know that in their hearts. But when you're looking for a solution in our legal systems, you can't find the tool that you need. And so around 2010, um, kind of when this, you know, quote, like phase of the rights and nature of movement in terms of it being implemented in legal frameworks and Western legal frameworks was taking off. I um got very interested in it, and that's when I when I first became involved um, in changing the laws and and working with communities who wanted to change their their structure and the way that they're relating to to nature and respect nature and steward nature, realizing that we're inseparable from her.
1: Yeah, so you became exposed to this rights of nature movement in New Zealand. Can you? give us a little bit of context for the rights of nature movement. And, um, and then if, if you want to talk about the earth law center and you know, how you're working within that movement and like, what does that larger movement look like? Cause it is a global movement and, you know, of course taking cues and taking lead from indigenous communities that have been stewarding and protecting nature for thousands of years, as we know.
0: Yeah, the rights of nature movement. Um, you know, it's interesting because it can be defined really broadly, and it can be defined also narrowly in the context of sort of the legal world. And and broadly defined, it's really this: it's a social movement. It's a recognition of what is true that humans are interconnected with nature; that we cannot just exploit nature um, endlessly and um, That we have a relationship with nature. Um, And in the context, in the legal context, it's putting those concepts into our legal framework. So that, for example, um, if there's an ecosystem that's threatened by a particular harm, that ecosystem can have a voice in court um, represented by human guardians and those um, who are close to that ecosystem, who are familiar with that ecosystem. Um, and what that does is it changes the playing field because right now often what happens is that there is an expectation that say an extractive corporation will receive a permit to engage in an activity that is, um, extractive. Like here uh, where I live in um, the Pacific Northwest, um, logging is a significant issue, um, and the way the process is set up is that um, you will get a, a permit and be able to log. There is no law that's actually protecting these legacy forests, for example, these mature forests that are old growth, have old growth trees from um, destruction, from from harvesting. And so, if we recognize that there are um, ecosystems that are essential, that the way that they function needs to be honored and the relationship they have to us and our own well-being. These forests, for example, are essential to mitigate the impacts of climate change and preserve biodiversity. Um, we see that giving these ecosystems a voice and designing laws that recognize and honor their importance um, to all life is essential if we want to continue to survive and thrive on this planet. hmm
1: what so it so you know you kind of were saying that uh, representatives from the community that maybe have a relationship to this expression of nature, a river, a forest, would be representing, you know, the representative in court. Can you kind of explain a little bit more about what that looks like in court, like within the the legal system? like how does it how does it work i guess
0: yeah for sure there are a couple of ways that laws can be designed to give nature a voice in a, in a particular forum um, including in courts and one of those is actually establishing a guardianship body and designating who who are the individuals the humans that are held to speaking on behalf of and in the best interests of that particular ecosystem. Um, And those individuals can be, there can be categories sort of delineated in a law that express a representative um, from the local community, a representative um, from the local indigenous community is, you know, essential to include um, someone with uh, ecological knowledge maybe a scientific background so there can be an array of guardians and then those guardians can file a lawsuit in the name of that ecosystem on behalf of that ecosystem and in its best interests and also important is integrating these concepts Um, one in particular is the precautionary principle which Basically, says that if there's a potential, if there's this risk of harm and we don't know how certain the potential harm is, there's not this incredibly high hurdle and burden that we have to jump over in order to protect this ecosystem. That we need to err on the side of protecting the ecosystem, or perhaps better said, there's a presumption to protect ecosystems. Um, When there's a potential threat, any potential threat of harm and the community sees that threat, that needs to be honored. And if an ecosystem needs to be restored, um, these laws provide holistic remedies. So more extensive remedies than just a minor sort of here's a monetary payment for X amount of damage that we valued the ecosystem at this amount. Um, it's, I mean, that's another topic, but it's incredibly challenging to even value these ecosystems because they are, you know, invaluable. Um, Mm -hmm. but so the way the law, so that's what it does is address some of the issues that come up in legal cases where, um, a community or an ecosystem doesn't have equal standing, for example, with a corporation that is seeking to obtain a permit to extract what they're considering to be natural resources. Um, So oftentimes this the the scale is and the legal system is so skewed towards that corporation that they're going to be winning these cases nine times out of ten and the most success we generally see with our current environmental laws is with um, delay through um, laws such as the National Environmental Policy Act where you have this process and procedure to create an environmental impact statement and you're just constantly trying to delay a project but that's not giving and just the more and more I talk to communities and the beautiful thing is that communities and you know people know this intuitively I honestly think it's it's lawyers more than to anyone sometimes that are confused about this really fundamental notion of a natural law of of respecting nature. Um, when I go to um, you know hearings, I hear this the most inspiring public comment of people speaking on behalf of nature, just intuitively um, without any formal structure in place even. So that's what gives me sort of the, you know, the the hope and and knowing that we will be shifting the current system that we have because it's it's not functioning the way we need it to. And um, I think most people do know that in their minds and their hearts. Being based in the US and being a US um, licensed attorney, um, you know, my orientation is limited by that perspective of what's happening here. Although um, I should say more, maybe more accurately, that my my perspective is kind of I'm working in the US legal system. So I'm very familiar with the limitations and the workings of that system. But at the Earth Law Center, you know we're a collective of attorneys and policymakers and scientists, and we work with communities around the world um, implementing earth laws and, and rights of nature is a type of earth law, and because it recognizes this fundamental connection between humans and nature and our the well-being of, of both being in, intertwined. Um, and in countries such as Ecuador, where the rights of nature has been enshrined in the national constitution, and that was dating back to 2008. So we're at a place where we're seeing decisions from the court, like Ecuador's constitutional court, Um applying rights of nature principles that are enshrined in the constitution and defining then through those court decisions what those mean. And so a recent exciting case involved Los Cedros forest, which was protected from mining based on application of the rights of nature as secured by Ecuador's constitution. So it it was essentially saying you know, here is this right that exists, this right of nature to exist and thrive. And we have a particular ecosystem that's being threatened by a harmful activity, which is this mining, this harmful extractive activity. And the court is then putting teeth to that by developing standards and frameworks to apply that and say, no, this activity, this mining activity is incompatible with the inherent rights of this ecosystem. It's just simply incompatible. So that activity is then stopped, which is different than a permitting system that allows you a corporation, you know, to apply for a permit to extract and that you then go through these regulatory hoops to say, um, you know, this check, literally like a checklist to say, we've checked all these things off. Therefore we get this permit and therefore it's okay us to mine, don't worry about the harm we're going to cause. It's fine. We've checked all these boxes and we meet the criteria, we meet the regulations. Because what we've seen is that obviously leads to mass devastation and um, destruction of ecosystems. So. What Recognizing the Rights of Nature does is it doesn't mean that you can check all these boxes and say, oh, this activity is okay. It means you can actually say this activity, this extractive activity is completely incompatible with the inherent rights of nature in that particular ecosystem. So you can use that to stop projects. And in the US, we're at the phase, the stage where it's an exciting place to be because we are still getting those laws in place. Um, So we have that framework to um, to implement the rights of nature. So we don't have a national, you know, in our, in our constitution, (laughs) of course, we don't have recognition of the rights of nature at this point, right? And in state constitutions, there's a movement to get that right enshrined in state constitutions. And I think we will be seeing that within the next decade. Um, and that's compatible with, and goes along with recognition of the rights to, um, a clean and healthy environment and the human right to that Um, because they really are inseparable. So I guess that's to say that um, that's the potential and that's why we need these laws and why we need to change. There's many pieces of the paradigm and the framework we need to change, but this is one piece to change to, as I said, really make sure our laws, our our laws on the books are actually corresponding with the laws of nature rather than being completely contrary to them.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, because you're trying to work within a framework that doesn't even recognize the, the rights of nature. So how do we go about redefining that starting point? I mean, it sounds like you're saying by getting some of these basic laws in place. I'm just thinking about how, you know, nature here, like for most people in the U.S., and, you know, in our culture, it's like the starting point is land as property or, or real estate. And that is how people view land. And that's like where the human the human relationship to land starts there as like something that we own or maybe don't own because we can't afford it. But, um, you know, I'm, how do you what do you imagine that that kind of restructuring of the starting point looks like? I mean, it starts with laws, but you know, it seems like this is something that people have to like adopt in their, you know, heart <laughs> more than before it can
0: become law. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of, um, you know, I, I see kind of both happening simultaneously. But ex- exactly what you just said, it's it's a change in um, what is. Unfortunately, you know the dominant, this colonial mindset of extraction and exploitation of nature that led to the mass destruction of complex ecosystems you know on this continent um, within a very short time frame. And so that's why this movement is inseparable from dismantling the colonial structures of oppression, uh, for instance. Um, because it's all interconnected. And you're talking about yeah, the mindset of owning property. And I think one place to really start is unbundling that what in law school they refer to as the bundle of sticks of your rights associated with being a property owner. Um that one of those rights being the right to extract and exploit unless otherwise regulated. Well, that's not, there's no reason that you should have that right. That's not a right that you have. You don't have a right to destroy nature and land and pollute it and do whatever you want just because you have this piece of paper that we have made up that gives you this you know, alleged right. I mean, if you kind of step back a minute and you look at the origins of these concepts, it's honestly quite ridiculous (laughs) that you can have a piece of paper and then suddenly delineate the space um, and then call it yours and then destroy it. When it's impact that, that destruction impacts the natural world. It, it um, impacts everything around you. Um, And so shifting to that mindset of having a relationship with the land and understanding that it is a relationship. Um, And I think that's where really there's so much to learn from the peoples who have stewarded this land that we're on. If if we're, you know, I'm in Washington State and Port Angeles, Washington and Lower Elwha Column Territory and learning um, from those who have stewarded this land from time immemorial um, and seeing that there's a relationship um, to the land. And I think that, because um, that's really one of the reasons I'm so excited about our work with Agrarian Trust and the Agrarian Commons is that the innovations um, that you all are doing in this space are, are, are necessary and, and very compatible with what, what we're doing in this earth law space of honoring land relationships and getting people access to the land is, is one key piece of that. And, and then also embodying that stewardship ethic, which people who work closely to the land and live on that land and are not separated from it Um, it's just there. It just is, you know, you just know that. And so I think that, um, I mean, those are places to start is really showing with the work, um, like the work that you all are doing, showing what it looks like to live in right relationship with the land.
1: You've collaborated with Agrarian Trust by incorporating the rights of nature into our agrarian commons leases. And so when a farmer signs the lease, they agree to respect those specifically defined rights of nature that are listed in that lease. Can you share some examples of rights that have been included in those leases before?
0: Yeah, and I'm just going to share some examples from a lease that is... um, actually available on your website, um, through the Puget Sound Commons in Washington state. And, uh, we worked there with you all to include some rights of nature provisions that are specific to ecosystems that are in, um, the designated area, natural reserve area of this land. And so, um, you know, kind of like in any, in a lot of spaces, right, there's often the the part of the land that you're, you're maybe actively farming and engaging in regenerative farming practices. And then there's um, maybe a part of the land where that ecosystem is just kind of left to sort of do its own thing. And that's the piece that natural reserve piece that in um, certain parcels of land, there's an appropriate space to, to do that. And so for um, the natural reserve area on this piece of land, some of the example rights we had are to be free from fungicides, pesticides, insecticides, and herbicides of any variety, to be free from native species removal, to be free from overgrazing, to be free from substantial human-caused disturbance, to maintain the naturally occurring water cycle, to be supported by healthy living soil. Um, Those are just some of those examples. And again, these are within the natural natural reserve area, so that's the place where there's less human interaction. So it's not to say that, um, of course, actively farmed land is not free from all human interference, but Um, So that's one place where we've incorporated that really is part of like a stewardship ethic and ecological stewardship plans in the leases. And it's really there to just um, to really express and give sort of the land a voice and remind, uh, remind folks that the land has this these rights and we have a responsibility I mean equally or more you know important is the responsibility and and duties piece that we have um because in the rights concept construct which is its own conversation sort of existing in this rights paradigm like we have in our western legal construct um we have responsibilities that go along with that and so in that view that we're working in it's really important to remember those obligations and responsibilities um, to fulfill those those rights, which gives us in practice, you know, how we're actually interacting um, with, with the land.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I would say that the farmers that we're working with are generally already doing these, you know, using these practices, you know, that they're practicing in an ecologically sound way, but it is sort of like taking it to the next step to have it in the legal uh, contract. And I think it's really interesting because it makes the farmer and gives the land, you know, they both become right-holding entities. And that is really interesting because it, it makes the two parties both sort of co-conspirators in a way as opposed to like the farmer is you know just you know managing or whatever the land it's like they both have rights they both are doing their part and i'm wondering how you know from your vantage point that gives both parties space to thrive you know not just the farmer but like both parties have a chance to um you know improve you know, the, their well-being. Hmm.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that's really the the place that we started from. And I think there's a lot more innovations we're working on in this space. But if you kind of look at fundamentally, you know, what is a lease, a long-term lease, or a lease to engage in, you know, live on land and engage in regenerative agricultural practices, or, or just the, the latter. Um, and in our typical lease, construct the land is not a party to the lease there's there's which is if you kind of step back and look at it it's it's funny right I mean but it's of course expected because our legal system doesn't recognize nature as having a voice and so but really you think about how land is the most fundamental party you know quote party to the lease relationship because the land is essential um, for. Um, everything that's happening and is the foundation of it and so you know listening to the land and the, I mean there's a lot of practices that go along with um, all of this right and protocols and um, and you know those aren't all articulated in the least but in terms of playing this out in practice and like you said I mean really you're you're working with these amazing I know farmers who are really doing this and it's just putting this in writing and in giving recognition to, to nature really is a party to the lease, Like you said, you know, it's having rights and having a voice in the lease construct because otherwise it's kind of funny to think we've got these two parties or two entities or two, two humans who are engaged in a contractual relationship about a piece of land and the land isn't even part of that. And so that's really part of what we're doing is giving a voice to that ecosystem and reminding that that ecosystem and that that land is, has a voice too in what's happening. And you know, and and farmers know, I feel like and you know people who are have the opportunity to be close to the land in particular obviously know that when we're caring for the land, then it gives so much back to us.
1: So I'm wondering now for any listeners that maybe own land or manage land, how might they incorporate rights of nature into their
0: relationship with the land they have access to? Well, there's a couple different ways. Um, And there's, I guess I would maybe put them into different Categories of sort of you know informal and and more formal ways um, that that can be done. I think you know in the what I'm calling the kind of informal, non-legally binding ways, um, which in a lot of ways can have you know just as much impact as a, a technically legally binding way um, is just developing protocols and connecting with the land um and really observing observing and listening and looking and asking what does this land need um what can i do how can i be in service to this land um in orienting around that you know that perspective um you know another another piece and in developing um We're working with some folks to develop land relationship agreements and and um, opening up and depending on the type of land and, you know, opening up access to a land. I mean, if you have 100 acres, five acres, you know, 40 acres, whatever it is, and it's a place where you can open access and invite people to come and experience and connect with land. There are so many people that don't have that access and that opportunity. So thinking of ways that, that you can do that um, and thinking of ways that you can enhance the, you know, enhance the environment and, and be a good steward of that ecosystem. Those are, you know, some pieces. Um, and there's also, more familiar legal tools, but that can be modified, like conservation easements that have traditionally been used to protect and conserve nature. We're um, innovating around the creation of other types of easements that would um, reflect more of the relationship with the land and the rights of and responsibilities to nature, on the land so there's an opportunity to put um, an easement on the property that recognizes the rights of nature and that recognizes living in right relationship with the land Um, and that's something that we're we're working on and happy to assist folks with um, really any of these structures you know putting in place um Kind of putting on paper these ideas, so that or helping people really think through, you know, how can I recognize the rights of ecosystems and my responsibility to ecosystems on the land that I where I live, and even just changing our language, right? As simple as um, talking about the land, not property. Like our, um, I have a two and a half year old and been really conscious, it's a shift in language to talk about the land we live on, not the property we own, you know, the land we steward. So just, it sounds kind of simple, but really that shifts your whole mindset if you are are saying the land we steward, not the property we own. So those are just a, a few ideas. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's great. No, it's so true that the language that we use Kind of shapes our construct of the world, <laughs> and so that's a really good, simple one that we can really all do. And we'll definitely, like you mentioned, on our website there are a lot of free resources, and you can view, uh, I believe, all of the contracts for the different agrarian commons on our website. And so I'll I'll link some of those into our um, show notes if anyone's interested in in reading them. Are there any other resources, Elizabeth, that you'd want to share for listeners who are interested in learning more about the Rights of Nature movement or the Earth Law
0: Center? Yeah. And I just wanted to make another note, too, on these on these documents that we're working with. I mean, these are, you know, we're innovating in this space. And so there's always going to be an evolution of changes occurring. And we always welcome collaborators and ideas from from anyone, you don't have to be an attorney to be doing this work and be thinking about different ways to structure our relationships with land. Um, and I think we're just at the we're just at the beginning, really, right? We're working. We're sort of still confined by our current legal framework and property ownership regime, but there's so much potential to move beyond that into other spaces, which I'm really excited about um as far as additional resources on the earth law center website um, of course there's a lot of material we have an education tab and one of the things we've really um do you know we we authored the earth law textbook um but there's also a literature review tab under education that has a bunch of different articles on the concept um and it's earth law concepts and a timeline that, that highlights, um, certain events and, um, laws that have been passed. Um, and then I've also added, um, a children's book recommendation, which I find, um, having a child like starting that age is I think essential to, um, changing the, um, just, changing the structure that we're in and, and this new, these new generations coming up don't have to be confined. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of wonderful organizations doing work in this space too. Um, and you know, I can, I think we've linked to a lot of our partners on our website. So, and of course folks are welcome to reach out to me um, with any questions um ideas, um, for additional resources and, in my email, I think we'll, I guess we'll probably put that in the additional materials, but it's E D U N N E at earthlaw.org. Great.
1: Can you share a little bit more about the earth law center and the work that you all are doing?
0: Yes. The earth law center is a nonprofit and it's based in the U S and we worked all around the world with communities and governments who are looking to pass innovative earth laws and by earth law I mean laws recognizing the rights of nature and also the rights of a human right to a healthy environment um, laws that advance animal rights and other non-human rights um, so it's kind of a bigger umbrella than rights of nature although a lot of the work we do is in that space of recognizing rights of nature and responsibilities to nature and really our relationship the human nature relationship and redesigning and, uh, legal systems so that they reflect this fundamental truth that corresponds with, um, natural law and, um, biology and stewardship principles that have been held by many indigenous peoples, um, around the world since time immemorial.
1: Yeah. And how, you know, how do indigenous communities, how do they inform your work and how do they, lead the work that you do, you know, as communities that, like you said, have been doing this for thousands of years?
0: Yeah, so I will give an example really specific to our, um, I think, specific to Agrarian Trust's work. Um, Obviously, when we're talking about land stewardship and land relationship, um, acknowledging and understanding and connecting with Indigenous elders and the stewards of that land, the the folks who have lived in that land and know it and know that ecosystem is essential to be able to um, develop uh, an understanding and expand our our ways of knowing that land and developing the human human relationships that are so essential to stewarding each other and that land as well. Um, honoring and acknowledging the peoples who have cared for that land and opening access um, to that land um, through different types of agreements and arrangements. Um, And then kind of more broadly speaking, the Earth Law Center supports Indigenous communities and tribal governments um, who have a desire to draft laws that interface with the Western legal system in a way um, meaning recognizing the rights of nature um, in a law that might really taking you know, fundamental principles of customary law that have guided um, that um, community's relationship with the land um, since time immemorial and, and putting them into legal constructs that interface with the Western legal system.
1: And that is so complex, too, because I can understand that there's so much distrust there And probably an aversion to participate even in that, that, in that Western legal system that you mentioned, that it does sound really complex in terms of how, how the legal framework can be a tool for good, but like for communities that have been harmed and have no trust in that system, how does that even, how does that work?
0: Right. I mean, that's a great question, because really, if you look at our entire legal system itself, it's really designed around oppression of people in nature. (laughs) And so the legal system itself, I mean, I think for a lot of people, but in particular, those who have been um, subject to unjust laws um, rooted in unfounded and violent philosophies, um, yeah, we're not looking to that system to, quote, save anybody, right? And there's a, um, understandable, can be an understandable level of, you know, just, distrust of that. So, um, you know, the way I see the work I do is sort of weaving between these different worlds, and we're looking for these, solutions, right now we're looking for solutions to this climate crisis that we're in and this crisis of biodiversity loss. And we're looking at an array of solutions that we have. And that is kind of the hat when I wear and I, I look at folks and I work as a movement lawyer, I work as a, you know, in, in strategy as a sort of technician for, for change. I'm just one of many of many voices and I'm just supporting and amplifying and uplifting those voices to um, affect the change that's desired. And so know my role is, is strategizing and assisting, and it's learning and it's stepping back and it's presenting ideas. and um, and I think, you know, when it comes down to the rights of nature frameworks, there's a value in the way that these frameworks can interact with what is still, unfortunately, the dominant legal system, which, allows corporations to extract, for example. And so if you want to pass a law that can give nature a voice to fend off a corporation that's trying to put a pipeline through your land and your traditional lands, your tribal lands, the rights of nature can be a useful tool to, to change the conversation and a pathway through which speaking about these traditional values and customary laws can come through, and so um, and meantime, uplifting and amplifying those those other systems and ways of being and governance. Um, so we don't need to continue to elevate the Western legal system, but we do. I feel like we're still interfacing and interacting with it.
1: Right. Yeah. Because that change that paradigm shift that we were talking about earlier isn't gonna happen overnight, but it will take time and, and, uh, and a transition period. And, and I hope that, that we move towards something different in the, this coming decade, like, like you mentioned, I'm gonna cling on to that.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I, you know, I think we will, if nothing else out of, um, you know, out of necessity, (laughs) because there's going to be so many shifts, I think. And um, I think that as we see maybe some collapsing of the current structures, what we have is a vision for a new combination. It's a, it's a, it's a new way and an old way. And it's a path forward that takes all of that we know, all of that has been learned from the past and all that we know now and moves forward even in an even better way. And that's where we need to get to is um, really re-rooting ourselves in that fundamental relationship between humans and nature. And I'm always encouraged and inspired by more and more people who, who are just listening to their hearts and they know that there's another way of being Mm -hmm. and we don't have to be stuck in this paradigm and we can peel back those layers as fast as we want. Um, And I think when we, when we need to, we'll see that we can do that.
1: Mm, Yes. I love that. We can peel back the layers as fast as we want. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you and I feel like we covered some good ground. Thank you for sharing so much with us today.
0: You're so welcome. It was my pleasure and thank you for all of your work and all the tremendous work that everyone at Agrarian Trust and all of your partners and collaborators and land stewards do. This podcast
1: is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality.
0: Learn more about our work at
1: agrariantrust.org.